We are looking at chapter 23 of Matthew in our discussions. And it's a difficult chapter because of the historical background of Judaism and Christianity and their struggle uh, between each other, uh, which has now placed false categories and meanings that become stumbling blocks for our understanding. So I'm going to give you four things that I think we need to know going into this chapter. First, that Jesus' ministry was to Israel. His comments are to the Jews first. There's not Baptists and uh, Methodists standing around when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to the Jewish people. And his ministry, he says, directly is to Israel, not to the Gentiles. Uh, so the Gospels need to be understood in that context. Secondly, the Bible in English can give us false notions of the Jews and of Pharisees when we think in terms of Christian versus Jew or Christian versus rabbi or Christian versus Pharisee. The notion of a Christian, as we think of it, is unknown in the Gospels. They were first called Christians in Antioch. This is from Acts, when the Gospel is now moving beyond Israel to the Gentiles. So be really careful when we look at these gospel um, texts to read them through Christian eyes. They should be read through Jewish eyes, Jewish eyes that believe the Messiah versus Jewish eyes that don't believe the Messiah, not through Jewish versus Christian eyes in that sense. Third, we have a notion of Pharisee as a legalistic, God-opposing Jew who are the enemies of Jesus. That's been given to us by the church. It is not the biblical understanding. So when we use the word Pharisee, we mean somebody who's being legalistic. They were zealous for the commandments to obey them. They weren't uh, uh, necessarily, in all cases, uh, wrong. And we're going to see that in this text that we look at today. The primary battle for Jesus was with the chief priests, who were predominantly Sadducees, and the leadership of the Pharisees. Even among these, the leadership, uh, there were secret followers of Jesus, such as, such as uh, Nicodemus. So we have to be careful to think that these groups, to remember that these groups were not monolithic. So think about Baptists today, think about Pentecostals, think about Catholics. There's an incredible variation that happens between those groups. One believing this, one emphasizing this, another believing this. We all know people who are good Catholics and bad Catholics, good Baptists and bad Baptists, good Methodists and bad Methodists. In that sense, you have the same thing among Sadducees and Pharisees. And then this final thing, and this one is critical. God works in and through people with all of our faults and our errors. Man works through organizations. God created the people of Israel and the people of Israel created sects within Judaism as expressions of their understanding. Organizations have dynamics which play people against each other. So don't think ever that an organization was established by God. I hear this all the time. God created the Presbyterians. God created the Catholics. No, God created 
believers, the body of Christ, and we have created organizations because God works through people and people work through organizations. Organizations, therefore, can become beneficial at times and detrimental at times. And the danger here is to not uh, be able to make that distinction. So with that in mind, I want to go through Matthew 23 um, because it is at this point that many people use this section of Scripture to go against the Jewish people, against Israel, against Judaism, and that is not what's going on here. So we want to take a look at this. So Jesus now, in uh, chapter 23, is speaking to the crowds. Remember who the crowds are. The crowds are the Jewish people that live around where he is. And his disciples. So he is speaking these words to his disciples and to the Jewish people at large. And here's what he says. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Now, I want, I want you to catch what's going on here. Jesus begins by saying to them that the scribes and the Pharisees have put themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, what does that mean, the chair of Moses? What it means is that they see themselves as disciples of Moses, and in his stead, in his place, in his chair, carrying on the standards and the authority that was in the ministry of Moses. In the Christian church, someone might call that apostolic succession. This idea that we are maintaining that which the apostles taught. We are maintaining, the Pharisees would say, what what Moses taught. Now, Catch the next words of Jesus. These are very important words. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and keep, do and observe. In other words, Jesus says, the Pharisees are now in the seat of Moses. They're in the tradition and the standard of Moses' teaching. Therefore, everything that they teach you, And he says that word, all. All that they teach you, do and keep. That doesn't sound like a condemnation of them. What they're teaching is right. He says, but don't do like them. Because they talk the talk, but don't always walk the walk. In other words, follow what they say. They they are correct in their teaching, but they're not doing it. What they're actually doing is, they're making it hard on you, and they themselves are not doing it. This is about leadership. And that leadership could be true of the Sadducees, could be true of the Pharisees, could be true of the priests, it could be true of the Levites, it could be true of uh, pastors, it could be true of bishops. This is a problem of leadership that teaches, and often are teaching the right thing, but are not living it. And what Jesus is saying is, those who are in those places of responsibility and authority, and are teaching, do what they teach, 
But don't be like them because they're not doers themselves. Remember, it is the doers of the word that are justified, not the teachers of the word who are justified. So having said that, he then is going to explain that their primary problem is hypocrisy. Again, this is the leadership that he is referring to. So in verse 5 he says, they do their deeds. So he's just said they talk but they don't do. But they do do some things. He says, but they do their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden the phylacteries, that's the uh, boxes that they would put on their arms and on their head when they were praying. You've seen that with Orthodox Jews. They made very large ones so people would notice them. And they, uh, uh, they also uh, lengthen the tassels of their garments, the tzitzit. They would, they would make those longer so that they would be obvious. So they are really putting on the appearance of spirituality, right? So that you will notice them when they are public and when they are doing their deed, right? And so Jesus says uh, that these guys are doing what they do only in public, only to be seen of men. Now that should trigger in you the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray in front of people. Go into your closet. When you give your tzedakah, when you give your charity, don't, don't sound a trumpet. Do it, don't let the left hand know what the right hands do. Do it in secret. When you fast, don't put on the long face and do that. Don't do this to be seen of men. Do it to be seen of God. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Okay, so what we're being told is there is a hypocrisy in the leadership where they are putting on the good look when they're being seen, which means they're performing, which Jesus calls hypocrisy, and the word has the meaning of someone who is play-acting. In other words, they're playing the part, but it is not who they are. Okay, so that's what this is talking about. And that, again, could be said of any group of leaders where they are leading by public performance, but privately they are very different people. And we're seeing a lot of those kind of scandals in a number of areas. Here it was happening among the Pharisees. So, he says, uh, they love the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. So they have some perks. They are professional religious people. I have often said that one of the best places to hide from God is in ministry. Because all of a sudden, you're getting paid to pray. And you're getting paid to do good things. And you're getting paid to do these things. And it becomes a job. And when you're on duty, you act that way. And when you're off duty, you begin to act another way. It's a serious problem among leadership. And Jesus is striking that issue in this chapter. 
something. And notice who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples and he's talking to the people. He's not now talking to the leaders. He will get to the leadership in a minute. So having said that, he says, uh, they love those, pro- those seats and they love being called rabbi. So now he's going to give them some instruction. Verse 8. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Now, this verse has created all kinds of problems. Uh, Protestants love to use this verse to say, you shouldn't be calling the priest father. And if we're going to take it that literal, then we can't call anybody rabbi. So then we got to go after the rabbis. And then you can't even use the word leader. Right? So certainly we shouldn't be using the word pastor. And we shouldn't be using the word teacher. And we shouldn't be using any of those words. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying don't ever use those words in reference to someone. Remember, Paul says, you have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. I begot you in the gospel. And he says to Timothy, I am your father. Now, the issue here is the meaning of those words. Jesus says, call no man into a place where he is usurping God in your life. In other words, who is our Father? The Father in heaven. Who is our teacher? The one who is in heaven, right? Who is our leader? But Christ, the head of the church. Therefore, anybody we follow, anybody we put as the one who is my intermediary to that, can then lead me astray. So he says, don't do that. Now, it's okay to use the terms as long as we understand that those terms are being used for an uh, office, if you will, and not authority. I always say that Leaders don't have authority. Authoritarian leaders are always a problem. Leaders have influence. So Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Notice Paul doesn't say, follow me as I teach you about Christ. In other words, he doesn't say, follow me as I teach you what to do. He says, follow me as I do what's appropriate to do. In other words, he speaks and he does, and therefore you can follow them, right? Again, it's the warning that Jesus is giving the people. Watch out for the people who talk the talk, but don't walk the walk, okay? And the people who only do it when they're being watched, and only do it when they're being paid, and only do it when they're being given honor, and and don't do it in the rough times and in the private times and in the secret times. So, having said that then, he says, But the one who is great among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So what is the, what is the key to spiritual influence and leadership? 
It is not talent. And it is not giftedness. We have too many people who are gifted and talented in leadership. And that's our problem. Because we're not being led by the Lord. We're being led by people who, who have arrogance and pride. The key is for someone to be a servant to the body. A uh, equipper, a caregiver to the body. And you only do that if you're not thinking about yourself. If you're thinking about yourself, you're seeing how can I expand my ministry and my influence. And if you're thinking about the body, you're saying how can I help here. And that humility is what Jesus is talking about. And therefore, if you look at the ministry of Moses, you will see incredible humility. When the people are griping at him, he says to them, Who am I? I, I'm nothing. I'm not. I'm just telling you what the Lord said, and I'm trying to do it. I'm not taking charge. I'm amazed at the number of spiritual leaders who take authority over their disciples. Even Paul says, I can take authority as an apostle, but I'm not going to do that. I'm wanting you to see my example. Because he understood that ministry is influenced by leading out. Leading out means you're the first to do, not the first to say. You don't lead from behind and say, y'all go out there and get them, right? You, you have to lead in that, and to do that, you have to humble yourself to be a servant and not be the drum major at the head of the parade, right? So, now Jesus is going to turn his words to those leaders who are guilty of this hypocrisy. And that happens in verse 13. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, play actors, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, this is the problem of ignorance and stupidity of theology without humility. These are people who are going to hold people back and not allow people to um, go forward. They have a reason why we have to talk about this and we can't deal with it until we get it perfectly understood. Uh, theologians sometimes drive me crazy because they never get around to the doing. They're always in the talking thing. Now, we need good theology. Don't get me wrong. I read theology all the time. But theology that doesn't have legs in obedience to the word of God is simply a religious form of philosophy and therefore of little use. So he says, you don't allow others in. Then he says, and this text is found in other places but is also in here in later manuscripts. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. So what are they doing? They are abusing the vulnerable. You know this. If you've got chronic illness, if you're struggling with poverty, and somebody gives you a formula to get over that in the name of God, you, and you can do it for an offering, and you can do it for buying my book, and you can do it for this, and they get wealthy on the backs of the vulnerable. 
but they, for a pretense, they make long prayers because I really care about these people. That should tell us something about that leadership. Then he goes on and says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Wow. Now this text is really rough. They were very evangelistic at this time. They would go places to make disciples. And when they made disciples, they taught them these formulas and they taught them this system of talking and not doing and made them twice the child of hell that they were. They were not making them followers of Moses. They were making them followers of themselves. And they were, they were creating like kinds. So, in this text, what we're, we're being given is uh, this notion that they don't have uh, the uh, they don't have the the humility that they're supposed to have. I'm looking for a text here. Uh, okay, I'm going to get to that. So now, what he's going to do is talk about uh, where the problem is. So in verse 15, he says, not verse 16, he says. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. Notice that the giving of the gold... And the giving of the offering is what they're focused on, not the temple of God where it is given to honor the God who sanctifies it. And so he then says, you blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and him who sits on it. In other words, they've got their emphasis on the wrong syllable. And they're going through this, struggling with this is more important than this and this is important. That's why I don't do that, right? Justifying themselves instead of seeing the big picture. These are people who can't see the forest for the trees because they're focused on the gold, they're focused on the offering, they're focused on their part and not their hum- the humble obedience uh, of the Lord. So, he now gives them another verse, another statement in this context, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now what's going on? Here's what's going on. They are meticulous about tithing their vegetable garden. I even tithe my vegetable garden. But they abuse widows 
and orphans. In other words, they, the things that don't make much of them, but they can make much of it, they do, but the weightier matters of the law, and there are weightier matters of the law, that's where this getting the priorities of the kingdom straight is important. But a leadership that doesn't keep the priorities straight and goes with that which is easy, and that which can be seen, and that which can be impressive of men, uh, miss the kingdom priorities. So he says, you strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. In other words, I'm nitpicking over here, and I'm ignoring this. And this may be the more important matter. Uh, so that's, that's where he's going with that. So now he's going to give them the heart of the matter, if you will, in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and Torahlessness, lawlessness. Woe to you, well, I'll get to 29. So here's the notion. Jesus is saying it's not about cleaning up the outside. We all know this. We have all been in, uh, that we get near the first of the year. <laughs> and we all make resolutions, right? And we're going to change this. And I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to do this. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to do all that stuff. And it doesn't last long. I've already told you my method for that is I make New Year's resolutions and then I give them up for Lent, right? That way I can hold on to them a little while, right? The idea is the outside is not the issue. And you know what's funny with diets, people are always saying, the diet is not, it's not about picking what you eat. It's about thinking about how you eat. There's an inside issue, right? It's the inside issues. It's out of the heart comes our evil. We can clean up the outside and make it look like we're righteous, but inside we can just still be the scummy person we were. And so the issue is we need a heart change. We need that circumcision of the heart, that the Spirit of God works a work inside. When we become clean on the inside, it begins to work its way into the outside. But the person who's just trying to give an appearance is going to do it on the outside and leave the inside hidden. So, he then says, and this is a scathing statement that he makes, verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, I am sending... Well, let me get to that in a minute. Let me catch, give you this. This is really a fascinating statement. They honored the prophets. Now... The prophets weren't honored when they came. They were killed by the 
the people of God, right? And then they, after that, say, oh, they were a prophet. And now we honor them. And they say, we're not like that generation. You know, they did that. We wouldn't have done that. The reality is this generation is going to be the generation that is going to ultimately reject the message of John referring to Jesus. Okay? And, and the apostles are going to suffer at the hands of this Jewish leadership. Not the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership. Because this generation of leaders has become corrupt. And you'll see Jesus talking about this as a generational issue. I want to talk about that in a moment. But I want you to understand that what they say is, when they say, we wouldn't... Here's the beautiful tomb of the prophet. We wouldn't have killed him. What they're actually saying is, my ancestors killed him, but I wouldn't do that. Right? I'm, all, I'm always amazed at people who say, well, my ancestors did that, but, but I'm not like that. Humanity is humanity. We all have a capacity in us to do evil. And unless we humble ourselves and seek the grace of God, we're liable to do the same things and maybe uh, worse things. So, now he says in verse 34, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, these things will come upon this generation. Now here's the generation issue. It's important to understand that generations are also part of community and the judgment and the blessing of God. There was a generation that came out of the Exodus, saw incredible things of God, but could not pass any of God's tests in the wilderness. And finally God said, I'm going to let you all die in the wilderness. Now there were two who kept faithful, and you know that. Joshua and Caleb. But Joshua and Caleb were part of that generation. And even though they were walking in righteousness and faith, they had to put up with the 40 years in the wilderness with that generation. Josiah, King Josiah, finds the book of the scroll. He starts doing the Passover again. And the Lord says the people are not going to follow, but before I judge them, I'll wait till you die. In other words, there is not a guarantee that just because we walk righteous, the generation is going to be righteous. In fact, in most cases, the generation will do the wrong. Be careful of following the crowd, because usually the crowd is wrong. And and Christians today don't know the difference between a stampede and a revival. If it becomes a stampede on Facebook, becomes a stampede on this, everybody's talking about it, nobody's thinking about it, everybody's reacted to it as if it's a revival of the Spirit, and it's because we are not doers of the Word. We're hardly hearers of the Word. So, our generation 
follows false leaders too. And I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about rabbis and pastors and leadership among Christians and Jews. There's arrogance and hypocrisy rampant in the clergy. Uh, We feed young clergy with cultural leadership skills and self-promotion. Then we wonder why they abuse the sheep and fight among themselves for the places of honor. Because they have learned that this is about a competition of whose ministry is greater. And Jesus rebuked his disciples every time they got into those kind of discussions. And yet, we don't get that message. Often their teaching is correct. But their behavior betrays that they are actually following the culture. They say the right things. We need to love each other. But they're not loving each other. We need to care for the poor. But they're not caring for the poor. Right? There's this thing of saying the right things. And drawing the crowd. And then living your private life. In that sense. So. Jesus tells that generation. That these things are going to come on them. We will be accountable with our generation. For the things that come upon us. And finally in the last verses here. Verse 37. Jesus then looks over Jerusalem. And says Jerusalem. Jerusalem who kills the prophets. And stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks. Under her wings. But you were unwilling. Behold your house. Is being left desolate to you. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is fascinating because they had just said that to him when he entered into the city. But the leadership rejected him and turned the crowds against him. And we'll see that in the crucifixion. All of that needed to happen. Jesus said offenses will happen, but woe to those through whom the offenses take place. We need to be focused on humility before God. Look for leadership that is a doer of the word and a struggler to do the word and maintains an attitude of humility and not arrogance and claiming to be God's man for the hour kind of thing. Jesus laments over Jerusalem, the city of God, which refuses comfort offered, and who kills the prophet sent. There's going to be a terrible loss of the second temple. It will be destroyed. Jesus will talk about that in the next chapter. And the people re-scattered into the diaspora. But Israel will not be rejected, nor the promises fail. He will return, and they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for a son. And they will reach the place where the scripture says, All Israel will be saved. I don't know how God's going to do that, but he said he's going to do it, and I trust him in that. So, uh, we're going to pray and then we'll do some Q&A if you have some thoughts. Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that it is easy for people to take these verses 
and go against Judaism and against Jews. And in a time when they are suffering greatly, Lord, we do not want to add to that. So keep your people safe and help us to step up beside them and stand for them and with them in this struggle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Is that a question? Yeah. It comes up and I just think, because I was talking with a friend just yesterday about regardless of all of the things that we may acquire along the way in life, at 60, 60, and 89, uh, the things of this earth are going to grow strangely dim. It doesn't even begin to yeah. cover And so you think about that, but then the ones that need seem to need all of these great things more and more as they go through each decade. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, I think there's multiple reasons, but let me tell you what I think, because this is a common pattern. Uh, I think that a lot of people in professional ministry, and that, I think, is part of our problem. There was no professional ministry until the Reformation. The apostles, Paul was part-time, right? He worked making tents. Some people helped, but it was minimal. When they did get it organized, it was you took a vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, a vow of obedience, sometimes a vow of silence, right? So you are, you are dependent on those who will just care for you, and therefore trusting in the Lord. Once we get to the Reformation, ministry becomes a uh, calling in the sense of a vocation. And then when we get to the last century... It really becomes a business model. So that pastors are given salaries and they are given retirement packages. Prior to that, even at the beginning of me being in ministry, you would move into a home that was a parsonage and, the, and it was just taken care of. It. And then what happened is people said, well, what's going to happen when they're older, right, at retirement age? Now, two, two philosophies there. One is, what do you mean retirement? Okay. So, for example... My father-in-law is 92 and is still a chaplain for a Christian group and preaches every week, right? And he will probably preach until his funeral. And probably if he could preach that, he would do that, right? Um, Ministry, you don't retire from. Career, you retire from. So if you confuse ministry and career, you get that mindset. So I think that's part of it. The second thing, and you know this, 
because you've been in church staff situations. There are pastors who believe that the pastor should not have any personal relationships with anybody in the congregation. There was an article in Christianity Today suggesting that pastors should know the names of their members. Right? That's interesting. Right? The idea... <coughs> and I had, a, I had a pastor in this association tell me, whatever you do, don't have close friends in your congregation. Well, I looked at Paul. Timothy and Titus were pretty close. Right? Uh, the people he mentions at the end, he was close to them. So... So who have been my best friends? They have been members of the congregation. Now, in retirement, I'm losing some of them. You know, the Hosacks have moved and the Herrigs have moved and that. And so Linda and I are trying to figure out, we've got to get closer to some of you all, right? Because those relationships matter. But there are a lot of people who think you don't do that. So then... You know, it's like a job. So if I leave here and I'm not pastoring anymore, I should not be part of the congregation. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that. It's, it's, let's say we lose a pastor. What is the typical Baptist thing? You go to another church and you watch their pastor and then you try to steal them. And that's always felt to me like a family lost the father. He died. And so they go next door and they say to the man, would you come be our head of household, right? Why would you do that? You don't, there's nobody growing up in the congregation that can do, we just don't have a family-oriented, relationally-oriented thing. So when you add that, and then you, we live in a time where there's uncertainty, and I'm with you on the thing. Let's say you have a good nest egg. It can be gone tomorrow. The markets could crash an earthquake could hit Southern California and everything that we think is going to keep us is gone. Right? Therefore, the only real security we do have is the, un the everlasting arms that are underneath. Right? Uh, now, I've read the text where God fed Elijah with the ravens. I don't want to experience that. But I get that, that, that there is nowhere on earth you can be that God doesn't know right where you are and can get what he needs to get to you. Do you believe that? And that's our struggle. So I think what happens is as people get older, the career thing kicks in, the lack of friendships kicks in, and the I have to depend on myself financially, and they lock into that mindset. Now, that's probably not all of them, but I think that's what's going on. And I feel those things myself. I have to remind myself that, uh, that the Lord is my supply and my source, not the Southern Baptist uh, annuity board, right? So, uh, you know, those, or Social Security, which they've been telling me every year of my life that it won't be there, right? And one of these days, maybe it won't be there, uh, but I, I don't know. You know, the reality is, the Lord is the one who supplies us, uh, and again, He gives to us unevenly, and expects us to redistribute in that in that sense. Any others? Uh, that was a long answer, but you hit a button that I was just reading about that. <laughs> 